At a time which was dominated by the basic graphics of the early arcade age, Rick Dyer had a vision. He wanted to make a video game that would stand alongside now legendary titles like Ms. Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Pole Position. It would be a video game that would create a fantasy world in which every single scene and action would be animated. Basically, Rick Dyer wanted to make a cartoon that you could play. His idea would eventually become Dragon's Lair, one of the earliest Laserdisc arcade cabinets. Today we're going to look back at the Dragon's Lair and the, talk about all the cutting edge technology put into it. But be very quiet so you don't wake the dragon on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 95th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at Dragon's Lair, originally released in arcades back way back in June of 1983. It was a, it was a game that was really on the cutting edge of technology at the time, and we're going to learn all about that too. Got a whole lot to unpack today. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who wishes he had nearly as cool a nickname as the protagonist of today's game, Dirk the Daring. My co-host is my brother, Rob Casson. Rob... Your nickname is Rob the Rotten. Where'd that come from? It's actually Robbie Rotten, and it's because Ro- we are number one. <laughs> that is a damn good meme. <laughs> that is a... I, when I wrote that, I had no idea you were going to spit it into Robbie Rotten. I should have known better. I really should have known better. I thought of all sorts of things like Rob the Rotund, Rob the Responsible. I pulled up a whole series of adjectives in R. And I don't know why I still don't Rob the Rotten. Probably because Robbie Rotten was in the back of my head. So I guess you win. Cause well, it is because we are number one. We are number one. Uh, it, I, I guess it's not really a bad nickname in, in hindsight. So congratulations. Um, yeah. So what you've been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week... I have been playing uh, ye old RuneScape. Ye old RuneScape, okay. I've also done a little bit of Rocket League. That we have. And some Fish Tycoon. Fish Tycoon. Yes, sir. That, That is way out of left field. That it is, but it's one of those nostalgia games for me. Fish Tycoon. Uh, yeah, no, that it, it's been a light game or a light week for gaming. How about yourself? I played a few levels of the new Turtles: Shredder's Revenge. I was, you were busy all weekend. I was super excited to play it, so I'm going to admit that to you. Uh, but only the first two levels. Um. I also spent a lot of time on Cyberpunk 2077 over the past weekend. I'm trying to get through it, and I am enjoying it. Well, it sounds like a fun week in gaming, Dave. It is a very fun week in gaming. Very fun week in gaming. Uh, You know, I'm very thankful that games these days are... Very thankful. There's a lot of games these days that are big, sweeping, long, long, long experiences. I'm 20 some hours into cyberpunk and I'm probably a quarter, maybe more into it. Uh, But back in the day, that wasn't the case. You know, our arcade games were meant to, you know, meant to basically take quarters from people. Let's be honest with you. So they were really designed in such a way that that, uh, you know, to to promote gameplay that was more difficult where people had to 
not sit in there and play for long periods of time and people had to keep dumping quarters into it uh so yeah um which is why though we have a lot to talk about admittedly our game today is relatively short because if you play it directly from start to finish it is about 30 minutes or less um but it's an arcade game and the amount of people who the amount of people who probably watched all 30 minutes was slim to none you know what i mean so you're saying not a lot of people beat the game i don't think a lot of people beat the game at all i think a lot of people beat the game later on um which we'll talk about later when we get into like the home ports of the game but as an arcade now i i don't think i don't think a lot of people beat it very much so but with that being said let's talk about the history of dragon's lear Rob, had had you ever heard of Dragon Slayer prior to uh prior to our research on this episode? I've heard of Dragon Slayer, but never Dragon Slayer. Oh my goodness, we've done this all week. Dragon's Lair. Ugh. Had you heard no, of Dave, it? No, Dave. I've never heard of Dragon's Lair. So the the whole series, Dragon Slayer, Space Ace, none of these games were like uh, you've never tri- tripped on them before. What was the other one you said? Space Ace is the other one. Isn't that that 3D pinball game? No, 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 no. Is it Space Cadet? Uh, it might be. I have no clue. I yeah, no, no, can't know. say that I've heard of what you're talking about. I loved this game. Love this game. I, I, I know nostalgia is very much part of it, but I love this game, and I feel like. <laughs> You know, we're going to go into player reviews. I, I pulled some reviews of people, who, you know, who have the, the, the same sentiment and provided them to you for today. Um, but the story of Dragon's Lair goes way, way back. It really starts with the text game adventure. And there are so many of these stories that we talk about where people got their inspiration from adventure and it was no different for the creator of Dragon's Lair, Rick Dyer. Now, as a fan of adventure, Rick wanted to create his own game inspired by it, which he called Shadowin. Shadowin was a large, expansive fantasy game slash world that took a page right out of the Lord of Rings series. Uh, I mean, literally out of Lord of Rings series. In fact, like he literally said that when he played Adventure, he thought to himself, what if I can make a game that's like this, but set in a world like the Lord of the Rings? And ultimately, the vision that came to him, because you have to understand, Adventure was a text adventure. You know, this was this was still the time, you know, the game was released in the in the early 80s. But you got to think like. Pac-Man was the late seventies and, and I mean, Pong, Pac-Man, they had all, they had literally all just come out. Pong was 78, 79, you know, Pac-Man was the early we're, we're talking, we're just years from bleep, bloop, blip, you know, squares on a scream type deal. Um, and so text adventures were kind of the thing. And Rick had this grandiose idea that he could make a game that would feature actual illustrations of every scene to convey the story now i know that i know that through like when you when you think about that concept through a modern lens it's it's really hard i i get that and we talk about that week in week out but that's why i wanted to illustrate like how er, like how, how we were just removed from really basic 2d graphics and here's a guy who says i want to I want to make a, 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 I literally want an illustration of every concept in the story. You you get what I'm saying? Sure. So his yeah. initial, his, <laughs> I know it's hard. I get it. I do. I do. You know, I, I sometimes feel bad for a lot of people in your generation or later because you don't understand and you don't get to enjoy all the technological jumps that the, that those of us that have been playing games for longer have. I mean, we, we, we've just, we've come so far. We literally came from nothing to, I mean, the games nowadays are amazing. There's so much uncanny Valley stuff going on that it becomes really hard to, you know, tell sometimes between the games in real life. 
But anyways, initially Rick thought of the concept as a flip book. You ever make one of those, those little flip books we used to make in school? Where you would uh, like draw you would draw a different scene like on a on a page of this little booklet, all these sheets of paper, and then you'd flip through them to make it animate itself. I never did, but I had some friends who did. Here I was thinking you're talking about like the Captain Underpants flip the page and it goes back and forth between two images when they're like hitting something or something. Like, no, yeah. no, no. No, like, I'm talking about the little flashback. Talking about the little flip flip books where you would just draw and flip through the pages and it would animate. Like a something. notepad that people would draw on. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. You know, yeah. So initially that was his concept, right? And his first thought was that he could use a roll of printing tape. Now, for those of you that don't know, because it just dawned on me that this is <laughs> a lot of technology that's going to be so foreign to people. Uh, calculators used to have paper and when you would do math each line would get printed on a piece of paper and those paper came in rolls i guess kind of receipt paper is still printing tape so if you work in retail and you ever pay attention to uh registers a roll of printing tape is similar to register tape it's essentially the same thing just the older version of it so his concept was to use a roll of printing tape and the scenes would be drawn in sections on the printing tape and he would make a mach- he would make a computer or a machine depending on how you look at it that was programmed and controlled by a microprocessor that would that would move the printing tape to show illustrations and stop to convey information that was that was his initial concept for where we're going today can you picture that at all uh yeah no i, I can being that I I've mean, seen some of this stuff, but maybe I mean, harder it, if you've never seen any of it. Well, well, just think of it as a really fancy, fast-moving flipbook. Realistically, what all he did was he he basically created a paper projector because that's all a film projector is, right? It just has film moving through it really fast, puts light through it, and that gets projected onto a screen, which is where it went to next. You know, he refined the concept after this from a roll of printing tape to a film strip projector that was synchronized to a tape recorder that had someone that would narrate all the information as players entered the scene. So, and so his idea was to make this machine that could be a game and tell this illustrated story that people could play. Then here in the late seventies came the video disc format. Have you ever heard of video discs before? Uh, I've heard of compact discs, but okay. not right. not video. Okay, well, I mean that's that's a later concept. Same kind, not really the same. Actually, not the same at all. But hey, we'll go with it. So the video disc format was was kind of short lived. It was called the CED or Capacitance Electronic Disc Format, which was known as video disc formats. It was made by RCA and it was released in 1981. And what video discs were, they were basically records that could play both audio and video. And I'm not even exaggerating. They were really large vinyl platters that used special styluses to read information off the disc. And that information could convey both audio and video. Wow. I mean, it's weird, but remember recently we talked about how they could pull computer information off of records you know it's all kind of the same concept when you look at it this was an analog format that could do video and it competed alongside all the other formats like we'll talk about laserdisc very shortly betamax was another format and vhs these were all the formats competing for the home consumer video market of course you know most of us have piles and piles and piles of vhs tape somewhere in the family I'm not saying our house, but the family. Um, so we all know which format went, went out, you know? And admittedly, video disc wasn't the worst technology. Its quality was better than VHS, but it wasn't as good as LaserDisc. Um, the players were lower cost because the, the technology was more mechanical in nature. There was less to it, um, but it was really sensitive you know, if there was dust that would get in the grooves of the of the vinyl of the record, basically, uh, videos would skip. 
the styluses would wear down and need to get re- replaced periodically, and the discs themselves uh, would wear down from the way the system was designed. Really, they could only be used about 500 times each. Uh, really not, that was not an issue for some of the other mediums, admittedly, so it, it had some faults to it. Uh, but, I mean, in the beginning, no one knew any of that, and so video discs looked like the solution for Rick Dyer, because now he had the ability to, you know, put video on a, 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 a smaller compact player that, you know, that he could turn into his vision. Now, he coined this vision the Fantasy Machine. The Fantasy Machine was designed to be the foundation for Sh- Sh- Shadowin. Shadowin? I never get it. I, I always butcher everything. Um, that you do, Dave. I know. So he designs this fantasy machine around a small piece of uh, Shadowin? Sh- Shadowin? Shadowin? Anyways. Shadowin? I don't know. So the small piece is called Secrets of Lost Woods. And he, he basically creates, takes the, the video desk player, creates this little prototype machine around a small portion of his big fantasy world called secrets of lost woods and he begins shopping that around to toy manufacturers and in all honesty it didn't go very well in fact there's one story out there where a representative of one of the largest toy makers uh at the time just straight up walked out of the meeting midstream so people Hmm. just they 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 couldn't see it they weren't having it you know end of story but then 1982 comes around, and in 1982, two things happen that really brought Rick Dyer closer to the creation of our topic today, Dragon Slayer. First of all, he saw The Secret of Nim, which was a really beautiful animated fantasy adventure produced by Don Bluth that came out in July of 82. Um, seeing that movie you know, helped him realize that he needed quality animation. You know, he was he was trying to sell this on probably him drawing, to be honest with you. That's not very clear, you know, and 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 it dawned on him why he was probably having trouble selling it. So he realized that he needed to sell it on quality animation. And he also realized that that he needed an action script. He, he couldn't base it on just a place in a world. He needed he needed a legitimate here's what's going to happen and why. So there need to be an action an action script to his game. Then towards the end of eighty two, he went to Chicago, and in Chicago in November of nineteen eighty two, there was a, a notable moment in the arcade industry. Uh, every year they had what's called the AMOA show, the Amusement and Music Operators Association, and at the nineteen eighty two AMOA uh, show, he was introduced to Sega's Astron Belt. This was an arcade cabinet that was the very first major arcade laser disc game shown. So let's let's talk about laser discs for a second. So we went from video discs to laser discs. Are laser discs familiar at all? I've heard of it, but I've never actually seen or used one. Really, you've never even seen it, like a flea market or something. No, I can't say that I have. That's kind of crazy considering how often I know you probably... Uh, do you get dragged to flea markets nope. at all anymore? Nope. Yeah. Nope. I refuse. Really? <laughs> I, I, yeah, no. It's oh, very yeah. seldom that I will go now. I used to get dragged all the time. All the time. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, okay. So, Laserdisc was the very first optical disc storage ever created. Now, optical discs we're familiar with. You already said the first one, compact discs. There's also DVDs and Blu-rays. Those are all optical discs. Uh, you know, we know what they look like. They're they're small. They're tiny. Um, but way back then, we had laser discs. It was the first. And it was released way back in 1978. And basically, they look like really large CDs. Realistically, they're really large CDs. You know, CDs are about 4.7 inches in diameter, while laser discs are 12 inches. Basically, they took it because video, the, the records, the video disc platters were exactly the same size. They took the video disc format and they turned it into an optical disc format. Uh, timeline wise, it came out about two years after VHS tapes were released to the world, but four years before CDs were released. Because you mentioned CDs, I thought I would throw that in there. 
And you don't know Laserdisc, so you're probably going to assume that Laserdisc fell to the wayside in the 80s, and you might actually be partially right. Uh, truthfully, the last Laserdisc movie was published in 2001. Actually, North American-wise, it was 2000. Japan was 2001. And the last Laserdisc player itself, uh, I believe Pioneer made them all the way up until 2009, and they discontinued the technology altogether in 2009. But realistically, after maybe the DVD format took off, I mean, even VHS, I'd say Laserdisc was way out of fashion by the time the 90s were around. But what Astron Belt did is it took the Laserdisc technology and it allowed it to play full motion video on the Laserdisc. And then you were a spaceship and the enemies were 2D graphics. So it kind of mixed full motion video and 2D graphics. Um, and it was awesome. It, it, I mean, it was, it was the talk of the show. And realistically, this not you know this AMOA at the end of eighty two marked the beginning of a a small era of laserdisc fever in the video game industry because everyone saw what it could do with Astron Belt and they they wanted to to uh they wanted to jump suit so or follow suit right 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 now I would like to say real quick because I don't think I'll have I don't know where else to touch base on this so Astron's Belt was the first one the first major laser disc title ever shown to the public um, shown to the public is the key word. I believe if I'm not mistaken that dragon slayer actually beat it into consumer arcades and therefore dragon slayer is probably well known and Astron's belt fell to the wayside, but so it's kind of weird because they made Astron's belt first, but it didn't, it took longer to get where it needed to go. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cause the one at the AMOA was a prototype. You know what I mean? Right. But this was the turning point. The AMOA was a turning point because, you know, he, he saw it, you know, first the movie and then the, the laser disc cabinet. And for him, all the pieces came together. He, he knew exactly what needed to happen. So he decided he was going to make a game called Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer was a very small piece of the secrets of the lost wood. It, you know, it was an even smaller piece of, the world inside the world he was thinking of. And his idea was actually pretty grandiose. After being in love with the secret of Nim, he actually hired Don Bluth and his studio to animate his vision. Now, let me t- take for a moment and tell you why that's kind of a special, uh, why, why it's special. Yeah. Why Dave? <laughs> tell us why. So Bluth was originally a Disney animator and he is known for having hand drawn some very notable scenes for Disney. Uh, His first project was Robin Hood. I believe that was 70 or 71. He drew the animated sequences of Robin Hood stealing money from Prince John. He also worked on the Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 movie. He worked on the Rescuers and his last title that he drew for Disney was Pete's Dragon, which is a pretty popular Disney movie. And... Uh, his family also has an awesome show on HBO <laughs> called Arrested Development. You know, every time I, I do anything here with this, all I can think of is Arrested Development. Um, yeah, exactly. So after working on Peach Dragon, he was assigned to work on a project called The Fox and the Hound. And he and the studio executives had some creative differences. And in the end, what this resulted to was Don Bluth leaving Disney to form his own studio, uh, which was called Don Bluth Productions. And The Secret of Nim was their first full feature film. It was him and nine or ten Disney animators that left and, and started up their own studio. Hmm. Now, just to kind of, you know, talk about his pedigree, you know, he did work on Dragon Slayer after Secret of Nim and worked on Space Ace and other projects with with this company that we're talking about today. But after these projects is, is where he got some of his most notable movies when he teamed up with Steven Spielberg to produce some of his best known work. Their first collaboration was called an American tale, which when it was released became the highest grossing non Disney film of all time. They also created the land before time and all dogs go to heaven, which if you grew up Uh. in the, yeah, if I mean your generation too, but those were like the movies back then. The movies that made children and adults My cry. My heartstrings, yes. 
Ah. So, uh, in in later years, he made Anastasia, which came out in the late nineties, and uh, his last big thing. He's done some little stuff, but his last big thing was not very successful. He animated Titan AE um, in the early two thousands, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, that one's not familiar to me. But back here in the 80s, you know, he just came off Secret of Nim and and, you know, he got approached by Rick Dyer to make this make this make this video game. And he agreed, you know, in order to make it um, RDI, the company that Rick Dyer created, um, sat down. They had game designers. They took their game designers. The game designers created all the characters and locations and then they choreographed all the players' movements uh, as the player encountered monsters and obstacles in the castle. They had the de- the art department at RDI, the development studio, uh, create storyboards for each scene of the game. And then those storyboards were passed off to Don Booth's company to actually be animated. Now Rick Dyer had come up with a he had come up with a budget of three million dollars, which was not too shabby here in the early eighties. Um, but even still, you know, it takes a lot of money to hire people to do this stuff. Uh, the studio could not afford to hire any models, so the animators took their inspiration from other places. For instance, a little fun fact about this game: the damsel in distress, Princess Daphne, was modeled using photos from Playboy magazine. So, oh, I know. Well, I mean, if you ever watch this, you'll never unsee it. You can tell that she's she's got I, I, she's perhaps a little too playboy ish, I guess, from in my opinion. But it's also I, I'm not making excuses for anything, but you'll you'll not unsee it now. They couldn't afford voice actors. So almost all the character voices in the game are employees of RDI. Pris- Princess Daphne is one of the department heads. The main character's voice for Dark the Daring, the main character in the game, is their film editor. In fact, the only professional voice actor in the entire game belongs to what we call the Attract Loop. The Attract Loop is uh, arcade titles used to play videos uh, to entice you to come and play them, and that was called the Attract Loop. And so RDI and Bluth... You know, they all came together and they worked on this game for, I mean, roughly seven months is the development schedule. And what they came up with was Dragon Slayer as we know it today. So for those of you that have no concept of what Dragon Slayer is, it is an interactive film video game. In it, you are Dirk the Daring, a knight, who is attempting to rescue Princess Daphne from the evil dragon Singe, who has locked the princess in the foul wizard's more more Drox castle. And it, it, I guess interactive film is the best way to describe it, eh? Yeah, no, I'd say so. Realistically, this is the birthplace of what we call nowadays QTEs, quick time events. You know, the game is where you're watching a cutscene and you have to press X at a specific time and if you press at the specific time, you pass it. And if you don't, you fail. Because that's literally what Dragon Slayer is. Um, except back in the arcade, there were no prompts. Um, kind of, sort of. You just kind of had to know which way to turn, you know, hit the joystick and learn the timing to make the scene go correct. It was, I mean, it was 1983. What do you expect? You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's it. That's, that's how you play the game. You're basically... You know, and we will post a, a playthrough. Um, we'll post a playthrough. But if you just Google Dragon Slayer YouTube, it, you'll find tons of playthroughs. Um, it's literally like watching a cartoon that you can you, you at certain times hit a button to either succeed or die. And they animated everything. They animated the scenes. If you fail, there's death animations for everything, which people find amusing. Some of the death animations are pretty cool. Um, and that's it. But realistically, you know, it wasn't easy and, you know, people would 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 not get through it. And if you play it, in all honesty, 
the modern versions have the ability to play it as a movie, not as a game. You could literally just hit play all and turn the deaths on and off. Sometimes it'll cycle through deaths, but if you turn it off, it'll just play the mo- the game. And the playing the game straight through from beginning to finish is 25 or 26 minutes. So, which blows my mind because I never played through it as a kid. Like I never was able to beat it in arcades. And to think of how frustrated I got... <laughs> dropping quarters into this when really it was 25 minutes of my time. If I had learned the whole game is kind of weird to look back in retrospect. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I sent you a playthrough for it. You had a chance to watch it. Uh, show did. What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, just from watching, it seemed like it could be extremely frustrating. Uh, there were a lot of different ways to die. Oh, there were a lot of different, a lot, oh, a lot, yeah. a lot. No, there were a ton. And it seemed like the timing, like, I know that there's a lot of games that are like really timing specific now, but it seemed like the timings were not very forgiving in those. And I don't know, cause it looked like the correct input was being made, but maybe it was just a little split second off. And no, the, the time, the timing was frustrating, but I, I know it's hard to talk about this, but think for one second. Think think about 1983. Think about you know the the fact that we're a few years removed from Pac-Man, and um, you know other things like that. And and it, it, like, do you understand what the draw was? Yeah, absolutely. You know the graphics were the graphics were amazing. You know. Um, and this was early 1983. 1983 is a very, very uh, notable year for the video game industry. Of course, we've, we've covered it before, but towards the end of 1983, we had the video game crash, which brought the entire industry, arcade and consoles, uh, to a scratching halt. Um, you know, but we're realistically just coming out of... We're just coming out of we're just coming out of the golden age of the golden age. You know what I mean? Um, this is, this is standing in arcades. You know, the, the top, the top grossing ga- arcade game for that year was pole position, um, you know, followed by Miss Pac-Man. And then we had Dragon's Lair in there, but think about the other games that we had. We had Donkey Kong that was, standing next to it and joust that was standing next to it and cubert that was standing next to it you know the games people were playing at home that was really popular were centipede and pitfall and pac-man and space invaders and you had all these games that like they were sprites on a screen and then all of a sudden there's this arcade cabinet that was just standing there that was like it, it was it was a cartoon it literally looks like playing a cartoon. You went from sprites on a screen to full animation that you can control. I mean, you can't control it, but you also can control it. You know what I mean? Yeah. This one was this this one this one was cool. That's all, that's what I'm gonna say. This one was cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my soapbox. What did other people think about it? Well, Dave. I suppose we should start with critic reviews. Okay. So with that, we will start. So, you know, when Dragon's Lair came out, the arcade industry was on the decline. Mm -hmm. And there was hope that Laserdisc games would bring back the golden age that they just came out of. A Newsweek article called Dragon's Lair, the summer hottest new toy. The first arcade game in the United States with a movie quality image to go along with the action. One kid that they interviewed called it the most awesome game he'd ever seen in his life. Fair statement. It was a super popular arcade cabinet. The first ever to cost gamers 50 cents a play. By the end of the year, it was the third highest grossing arcade cabinet behind Ms. Pac-Man and Pole Position. The only bad thing about it was that someone mentioned the game being out of order often. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Uh, Laserdisc wasn't designed in the beginning, at least, for um, to be used this way. You got to think about it. So movies typically are played from beginning to end. 
And so the disk would just be, you know, start in the beginning and the, you know, it would just, the data would just stream across it and get to the end. But in a game like this, you're trying to access this clip here, this clip here, this clip there, and it went back and forth. And so these, these laser disc players were getting a lot more use in a different way than they were used to. And they were in the, at least the, you know, the first cabinets with the early laser disc players were notorious for breaking down. Um, with not too many hours of gameplay, it was just it was just abnormal usage for it was abnormal usage of a laser disc. Now later ones, you know, collectible wise, they say it's pretty impossible to find one of these cabinets with the original player in it because of that. Um, you know, but they would replace them with better players, and later on, you basically went from a laser disc player that would have to be replaced after you know, four or 500 hours of use to ones that could withstand 20,000 hours of use. So, um, it was in the beginning, lots of replacement laser disc drives. So there you go. Also, I want to say you mentioned that the cabinet was the first ever to cost gamers 50 cents a play, right? Um, yeah, that's correct. Dave. That's hard to think about now when we have games that, I mean, most arcades don't even use actual money anymore. That's probably a foreign concept to everyone. Now they all use stupid cards. But, um... Hey, I can carry a lot more on a card than I can carry in my pocket. I know. I But, st- I look, man, there used to be something special about going to the arcade, putting the money in, and then getting, like, a little solo cup full of quarters and carrying that around with you. That was... That was an adventure all in itself. Um... But with that being said, there's something impressive when you think about it that it was the third highest grossing arcade cabinet behind Miss Pac-Man and Pole Position, which were quarter games. Um, those games were stupid successful in hindsight, um, considering that this game cost twice as much and still didn't beat them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But yeah, that's... Um, that's uh, the summer's hottest new toy, huh? It definitely was at the time. But, of course, it had to be behind pole position. I mean, that naturally was number one, right? <laughs> that was a good joke. I, I'm a little upset with myself for not thinking about that one while writing this. That's well, all right. you'll get there someday, Dave. Okay, whatever. Move, move it along, kiddo. All right, Dave. Well, we don't have any other... We don't have, you know, a, a formal critic review, per se. But that's because... Today, we mostly care about the users. True. So, it's still hard to refine reviews from the 80s, but luckily, Dragon's Lair has been ported so many times that it's easy to find what people think about the game, even if they put a little bit of a modern spin on it. With that being said, here are some reviews from gamers around the world. Hanglyman on GOG.com said that I'm sure most people know that Dragon's Lair was special in its day, almost entirely because of the graphics. In the days of Mario Brothers, Pac-Man, and Dig Dug, a game featuring interactive Don Bluth animation must have seemed like it had fallen out of a magical portal to the year 3000. There was just no comparison whatsoever. It blew everything else away by a light year. The gameplay was only passable and rather frustrating, but nobody cared. If it cost you a dollar and quarters to see two minutes a game, it was worth it. If you were lucky, there would be someone who knew the game by heart showing off and you'd get to see the whole thing for free. By today's standards, the animation is still great and unique, but the gameplay just doesn't hold up. Quick-time events aren't well-regarded these days, and trying to perform them while watching what's going on in the animations is virtually impossible. You'll tune out everything but the flashing hints telling you where to go next, and when it's over, you'll only have a vague impression of what happened. That's actually a true statement. So I I purchased the trilogy to replay this game, uh, which was $10 on GOG.com, not a big investment. And the trilogy includes Dragon Age, Dragon Age 2. Uh, and the trilogy includes Dragon Age, Dragon Age 2, and... <laughs> damn it. 
And the trilogy includes Dragon Age, Dragon Age 2, and Space Ace. Three times. Lair. And the trilogy includes Dragon's Lair, Dragon's Lair 2, and Space Ace. You got it, folks. I got it. I got it. it. It's because I may edit all the others out. It took me four times to say Dragon's Lair. But in any case, Dragon's Lair, uh, I played. And um, the modern version does show... So in the arcade, the there was no prompts on screen. Like, the modern version shows a like little control that shows up, down, left, right, and a sword for attack. And you can either click the mouse, or you can use the space bar and the arrow keys on the screen to control, the, to control it on the PC port. And... You can set it for a mode that it will prompt you like a modern game for when you hit it. So when you need to hit left, you know, uh, it, the left arrow will light up um, and it plays a little bit like Simon says in that respect, actually. But um, you can get through it. And that's how I played it. And I was able to beat it in like 30 minutes or so. But that that statement's absolutely right. Like after I played it, I realized that I was focused so much on hitting those buttons that realistically I didn't sit down and, and watch it. Uh, luckily the ports also give you the ability to watch it as a movie. So I then went behind after that and spent another 25 minutes watching it as a movie. So I could actually enjoy it. Cause that was, that was honestly the first time I had ever played through the entire thing ever. I'd never really even thought about looking it up on YouTube before. Um, so that was the first time I got to see the whole story from beginning to end. And I'll probably watch the others in the same respect or play them slash watch them. Cause I don't, I don't honestly have any familiarity with the rest of the trilogy. So with that, we have our next user, Fidel10 on GOG.com, who wrote that, I guess it shows my age, that I actually beat Dragon's Lair in the arcade. I loved it, but it was more like putting on a show. There was no PlayStation 4 outside of us playing in the backyard. The concept of home video games was so far-fetched that it never even entered into our thoughts. Think about walking into a room where the most popular and technically advanced game was a Pac-Man cabinet. And suddenly, around the corner, you hear a humanly voice say, Dragon's Lair. You turn the corner to see an actual animated cartoon in an arcade cabinet. Things are taken for granted now as people complain about such trivialties when it comes to games. This was a hallmark for an age, and I am proud to be of that group. I remember playing games when other gamers were physically there with you, and they were supportive and enjoyed the experience that you provided them with. I had more than a few people behind me cheer when I finished Dragon's Lair for the first time. I assume that is why Good old games is the name of the site. I, I don't know. There was something special about going to the arcade with your friends. Not that I don't like that we get to. I think we get to play together now more so because it's so um, convenient, convenient to just sit, you know, sit and play for an hour at the end of the night, not have to get up and go somewhere or do anything. But uh there, there's. I mean, it's the same for anything. This is the thing. Let's be honest. There's, there's always a special place for any, any hobby to be live. You can listen to an album in the the privacy of your own home. You can listen to an album at a party, which is a different experience. You can listen to an album in a car, a different experience. Or you can go and listen to an actual concert, which is a different experience. Arcades is kind of the same thing. We can sit and play games in the privacy of our own home. But we still enjoy going to arcades, you know, and, and, and socializing with our friends. It, you know, we, we have arcades and barcades. Um, you know, it's just a little different nowadays. You know, the same can be said about murder, Dave. It's different where you do it. Okay. You are right about that. Yes, indeed. Murder. Okay. Um what what did our next guy guy have to say 
Well, Dave, James on Steam is also nostalgic about the game. Writing that back in 83, when this game first came out, we had a single arcade in our small city. That's not small. That's not so small now. That had Dragon's Lair. Many of us fell in love with the game, and a new challenge was present in our community arcade. To beat the dragon and save the princess. I dumped way too many quarters into this game and came back late from lunch on more than one occasion. You entered the arcade and installed a, mo- a monitor above the machine so others could watch while you played. In time, I had developed quite a few followers that I think figured I was most likely to complete the game. Some would even let me play ahead of them, even though they had their quarters lined up. A couple of times, other people even paid for me to play the game. One afternoon, it finally happened. Amidst the small crowd of people surrounding the machine, I reached the dragon's lair. Of course, I didn't beat it the first time. But I played again, and much to the enjoyment of the crowd, I defeated the dragon, and we all saw the end of the game. I was very proud to have been the first person in our city to have defeated the game. The next challenge, of course, was to defeat the game without dying. This challenge did not take very long at all. Of course, seeing the game on Steam meant I must purchase it for nostalgia's sake. Playing through it was not too difficult, and for the most part, I had no problem with the control response. I was surprised by how many moves I remembered from all those years ago. I actually found the graphics to be very decent for this version. If you're a fan of cartoons, or nostalgic for the game, then I would say it is definitely worth the purchase. I know it was for me. I mean, I know they're short, but $10 for three games isn't a a, a lot to ask, I guess, so. Well, $10 is still $10, Dave, just as Wu-Tang would say. Oh, what would Wu-Tang say? Well... I don't actually know, but I can tell you that Wu-Tang on Steam writes that in the mid-80s, my mom would drop me off at the arcade while she went shopping, and I'd just hang around and watch older kids play this game. Back then, in the arcades where I grew up, teenagers would put ashtrays on arcade machines and smoke while guiding dirt through the castle's myriad traps and hazards. I'd be entranced. This is the game that got me into gaming. If you have a strong sense of nostalgia for Dragon's Lair and other Laserdisc games, then you want to buy this. It's a perfect translation of the arcade original, and I'm glad I lived long enough to see it. I never had enough quarters as a kid to beat it, but now I've been able to earn the Lair King achievement, a challenge I've always wanted to master. If you're new to this game, then it might be a tough sell. The gameplay isn't very engrossing, Press the direction or the sword button at the right time to progress through the game. But if you appreciate the look and sound, then you'll enjoy playing. For that matter, if you're into animation and or you know who Don Bluth is, then you should check this game out. What achievement didn't he win? The Lair King achievement. What is the Lair King achievement? Let's see. I don't know, Dave. You were the master of this game. Come on. I'm not the master of this game. Lair King get the highest possible score, which is 427,469. Nice. So. Okay. Max score. Well, Dave, that's it for user reviews. So I guess it's back to your part. Oh, well, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about Dragon's Lair. You know, it. It's still around. It's been ported onto every system imaginable. And as we talked about, it's now a trilogy that you can find everywhere. It's on the Switch store, the PlayStation Network, the Xbox Live store, and good old games, Steam. You you can find it everywhere. Um, Even little fun fact, uh, in celebration of their 30th anniversary... Brutal Deluxe Software. There are a group of developers that have been making software for the Apple IIGS since 1992 for fun. 
they released a Dragon Slayer port. They took elements from the Amiga, Atari ST, and PC DOS versions, and they made a Apple II version. Um, there's no real commercial reason to make software for the Apple II GS. It hasn't been made in as many years, so they do it for fun. And uh, yeah, they made a they made a, a, a Dragon Slayer port. So it actually was officially released on a port in 2022. So they're still making it. And like I said, you know, every time it comes out nowadays, actually the the, the Apple II GS isn't a trilogy port in the same respect. But typically you'll find it, like you can find physical physical copies as the Dragon's Lair trilogy that includes Dragon's Lair, Dragon's Lair 2, Time Warp, and Space Ace, which was another, another Laserdisc title these guys made. Um, you can also find it... Um, <clears throat> If you don't want to play it on a video game console, they released it as a DVD playable with the remote and on Blu-ray as well. In fact, uh, they made a, a format for Blu-ray consoles called BDJ, which is basically Java for Blu-ray players. And it was the first disc ever made with BDJ on it. If you're into emulation, not that I'm condoning piracy, but uh, there is a specific emulator for all Laserdisc arcade titles, and it's actually called Daphne, named after the princess of this title. Uh, 1984, there was a short-lived cartoon. They made 13 half-hour episodes. I've never seen it. It's on my list of things I wanted to watch but didn't have time. And if old cartoons from the 80s are not your thing, uh, in 2020, way back in March of 2020, in fact, Netflix announced that they were working on a full-length Dragon Slayer movie with Ryan Reynolds as Dirk the Daring. Uh, it was canceled, not canceled. It was postponed in the middle of the pandemic, but it's never been officially canceled. So we are crossing our fingers and hoping that we actually get to see a Dirk the Daring, uh, a, a, you know, a, a, an actual Dragon Sleuth movie. You know, Don Bluth is still still doing stuff. He's attached to the project, one of the producers. Uh, recently, he opened up another animation studio. Um, he's he's been in a bunch. Don Booth Productions went bankrupt, and they opened up another, and it went bankrupt. It's just been up and down. I mean, that's animation's not it goes in and out. Hand animation goes in and out with style, I guess is the point. But he opened up another one recently with the hopes of what he calls returning to quality hand drawn animation. As for Rick Dyer, after Dragon Slayer and Space Ace gave his company RDI some money to work with. He tried to turn his fantasy machine into an actual gaming console called the uh, Halcyon. It was, it was, it was supposed to be pretty cool. Actually, it was a laser disc based system. They designed it to be entirely voice activated. It actually had to learn your voice, and then you could use voice commands to do just about everything. Um, but it never made it anywhere. It actually failed before it even made shelves. Like they, they canceled the project, shelved the project, and. Um, and eventually RDI went out of sale, out of business, actually. Rick Dyer is a realtor in California these days, actually. Oh, interesting change of work. Now, before yeah. that, though, before that, he did eventually get to make Shaodan. At one point, RDI made a conversion kit for some of the Dragon Slayer and Space Ace cabinets. It was a game called Thayer's Quest. And Thayer's Quest was just another Laserdisc title made by the company. But eventually, Thayer's Quest was ported over to P PC computers as... That's a that's a redundant PC computers. Because PC's personal computers. Anyway, it was ported over to PC as the under the title Kingdom the Far Reaches. And in 1996, a company working with Rick Dyer made a sequel to that company... Make, a sequel to that title and said sequel was called kingdom to Shaodan. So he did eventually get to make, it may not have been the whole world, the big expanse of everything, but it was, it wasn't a small title. It had a $9 million budget and hundreds of people working on it, but I can't tell you much about it. So obviously I don't think it got anywhere, but he eventually got to make his vision. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, that's awesome. So, but yeah, that's, uh, and that's, that's Dragon Slayer. It was, it was really special for its time and it's really dated now, but I still think it's really, I, honestly, 
so having played it, this is what I think about it. I think the animation is timeless. You know, um, good hand-drawn animation doesn't date itself. You know, we still watch... We still watch the Mickey Mouse cartoons, you know, from the from the 50s and 60s and Winnie the Pooh and Looney Tunes and all this stuff that was made way back when. And I don't think that it dates itself. But with that being said, the gameplay of the game, in particular, the timing that you were talking about, I think it does date itself a little bit. And and that makes it both accessible and inaccessible at the same time because you look at it and just based on the animation it definitely has a place but when you go to play it it feels like it was made in 1983 i I don't have a good suggestion but if anyone could ever take the game and try to update that concept it would probably do a lot better um with that being said they did make a couple other uh titles outside of the dragon's lair trilogy and one was dragon's lair 3d where they retried to make this in like a 3d concept with cell shaded animation and it didn't do very well um they also made it for the nes as a side scroller they made it on the game boy with gameplay that doesn't resemble it at all um because most game boy games didn't uh so they've tried a bunch of ways but i don't i i think that i think that dragon's lair is for me best served as a movie because I, I it doesn't date itself if you watch it as a movie does that make sense uh sure dave do you have an opinion at all i mean <clears throat> no i have no opinion <laughs> nope. it's just me <laughs> all empty up there no i mean it, it, it was interesting to watch um it like i said it, it, it just was just a little dated like you said the sound effects kind of yeah. got to me like older sound effects just kind of have that tinny it doesn't have it doesn't really have much it, 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 it just felt know. like the same thing over and over and over well, again. it is no it is so that is one thing about it they made the game forward and then you replace some of the scenes mirrored on the back end of the game so it's 25 minutes, but there are a handful of scenes that you actually do play through twice. They're just the moves and everything in them are opposite to one another. Does that make sense? That is absolutely true. You are not. Yeah, yeah, okay. You're not. You're not imagining things. It it does play twice in some ways. So, um, it does play twice in some ways. But uh, yeah, I mean, hey, ten bucks, three games. Three three movies to watch, short films. There are worse things in life. You should you all should try it. I think I I still can't get over the fact it's 1983. I mean, this game's in 1983. This game is standing along pole position. If you put them side by side, it is kind of mind blowing. The graphics are mind blowing, even if the gameplay wasn't quite the same. You know, so. But there are a lot of games that have really great gameplay, and we talk about them week in week out. Uh, on other episodes you know recently we did an episode on what did we do episodes on recently rob why can't why why can't i come up with anything we did king's quest what else did we do recently we did madden what 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 else what did we do last week why can't i even think of last week can you think of last week are we really that bad that the moment we t- we stop talking about it they're gone <laughs> Once again, Dave, I just sit here <laughs> and wait for you to continue talking. What did we do last week? Uh, an open world that awaits us. Ultima. We did Ultima last there week. There you go. We did Ultima and Richard Garriott, the space, the spaceman, spaceman. So week in, week out, we talk about a lot of things. We're on episode 95, so there are 94 episodes before then, each with its own unique set of topics. You can learn a new story about a game every single week. If you want to learn, uh, if you want to check out all of our other stories, you can do so by going to our website, which is probably where I should have gone a moment ago instead of asking Rob what we did last week. And that website is www.memorycardlane.com. At memorycardlane.com, aside from all of our episodes, you can find links to all of my show notes, so where I pull my notes from, my materials. Usually I post playthroughs of games. 
You can find a calendar of all the games we're going to come up and talk about. Uh, honestly, for the rest of the year, I post my schedule for the rest of the year, along with links uh, and an email address if you'd like to share your own stuff for us. In all honesty, the best place to do that, there's a link to our Discord. Come join our community and talk to us directly. Let us know. Let us let us know. Let us know. So, um, also our social media links are on there. I'm in various places. As David is wrong, and Rob, what? Where can people find you? I will be on Twitch.tv forward slash f a t b o i r i p z. Awesome. Well, like I said, each week we tell a story. We want to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. When we teach, we learn. And so every week, in recognition of that, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what was the coolest thing, our biggest takeaway for today's episode? Well, Dave, honestly, I would have to say that this game came from Don Bluth, who happened to be such a huge part of my childhood that I didn't even realize. There you go. Um, yeah. And then it's just kind of crazy to see this. And I knew that the star, the style looked familiar. It, it felt very familiar, but I, I never would have guessed, you know, I just figured, Hey, that's just the eighties. Not that it was literally the same guy animating everything that I love from that time. Yep. Yep. Very true. That is, so, um, yeah. And I mean, and he did this before all that. So, you know, this was someone paid him a lot of money to to make 25 minutes of animation. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But what about yourself? I had never heard of the Halcyon and I'm probably probably butchering that name, too. I didn't know that they tried to turn. I didn't know this game was like they tried to make it a standalone machine and then that's the concept of a standalone machine turned into Dragon Slayer, which funded his attempt to get a console off the ground, which was a voice activated laser disc console. I, I never really knew any of that story. I I had never heard of it. I mean, it was canceled before it went hit shelves, so there's no reason I would have heard of it. But I always like learning of new things and that the, that console and how we got to that point was new for me and very interesting so so yeah that that's it for me and with that being said that's it for today's episode before i take it out of here rob what what would you like to add anything well dave as always i just want to take a quick moment to say thank you to each and every one of our listeners it means the world to know that you're out there somehow enjoying listening to our voices tell you about old games yeah, or maybe they don't enjoy it and they're gluttons for punishment. That's a distinct possibility. There's some really weird people out there. Well, tell us which one you are anywhere that <laughs> no, Dave mentioned earlier. No, no. Oh, okay, all right. Well, next week we're going to be looking back at one of the Capcom 5. The Capcom 5 was a series of five games announced that were really designed to bring more content to the Nintendo GameCube. I don't, when I was looking at this, I have we done a GameCube title before? We did Ocarina of Time, but that's not. I, what? I, well, where's the correlation there? Because I was thinking of, of the, because the, when, when we talked about it and you played it, it you played it as the, the, remember how they made it on a GameCube disc? No, I, oh, okay, I didn't well, actually. I played okay. it on the 3DS. Oh, okay. You played on 3DS, but they did. Maybe they didn't make it. I was just thinking about Zelda as the possibility for a GameCube game. And the only episode on Zelda that we've done is Ocarina of Time, if I'm not mistaken. And I can't think of another GameCube title that we've covered yet in 94 episodes. Can you? I, I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong, but I can't think of any. I mean, at the moment, I can't either, but also, I have worse memory than you. Also, we forgot what last week was, so how can we remember 94 episodes? Uh, got yeah, you em. got a point. You got, you got a point. Anyways, this particular game uh, was to be directed by a game designer who had 
honestly some a really good pedigree. His credits included work on Resident Evil 1 and 2, and he also helped uh, direct The Devil May Cry, which is one of your favorite games. So back in 2002, when Beautiful Joe was first announced, there was admittedly a whole lot of hype behind it. Do you remember Beautiful Joe at all? Yes. Yes, I you sure do. do. Uh, well, there you go. Well, next week we get to do something that you have some familiarity with. But the real question is, Rob, did it live up to the hype? Well, I guess well, we'll have to wait till next week to find out, won't we? We're going to. Yes. So stick around. Join us again next week as we'll discuss that and more as we take next week's red hot trip down memory card lane to the thing. Scoop up, bottom, bop, 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 boo, doo, wah.